Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and listen to amazing and bizarre science infuse into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition we'll feature Sexual Strategies, How Little Guys Win, Learning Science by Doing Science, and Unix, not Linux. But first up, here's the news with Therese Chen. A study in South Korea has found that Unix had a longer lifespan than their non-castrated counterparts. There has been previous research which suggests a trade-off between re- reproduction and longevity. However, few of these studies have been conducted on humans. The study examined the genealogical records of Unix who lived during the Chosun dynasty 1392-1910. Employed as guards or servants in harems across the Middle East and Asia, eunuchs in the Chunsun court, unlike those under the Chinese Empire, were able to marry and have families through adoption. The young Segyebo contains birth and death dates, place of birth, rank in the royal court, names of wives and adopted sons from, from progenitor Dyok Byung-yung. It suggests that the eunuchs had an average lifespan of approximately 70 years, 14 to 19 years longer than non-castrated men of a similar socio-economic status. Study author Kyung Jin Min of South Korea's Inner University believes the results are likely due to the reduction in testosterone. As well as possessing an, an antagonistic role in immune function, male sex hormones also predisposes men to coronary heart disease. According to one of the lead theories of aging, known as, known as the disposable soma theory, aging occurs at the expense of reproduction, he said, because the body has limited energy that can use either to keep up reproductive function or else to keep up everything else. The results were published in the current biology journal. Interestingly, the same results were not found in a study which looked at the lifespan of castrati singers in comparison to the bass, baritone, and tenor contemporaries. Now, this is quite interesting because I'm not sure I totally agree with their reasons for why the people, why the eunuchs lived longer. Although it's interesting that it didn't happen in Europe to people treated sort of the same way. Mm-hmm. I'd always thought, I wonder if the testosterone also made them also makes men more risk-taking and therefore more likely to get killed. And so the eunuchs weren't taking the risks, although that's not true of their guards. Mm. So I'm not sure about that. And of course, the, the question that everyone would be wondering, the takeaway lesson is, if you want to live longer like the Korean eunuchs did, what has to happen to you? And the answer's not very nice. No. But I guess the bigger question is... Um 
they don't really specify what the cause of death was uh, eventually, so that might be very important as well, I think. Well, I think just for the listeners that, that don't know, if you look up the Korean eunuchs to find out how they actually made boys into eunuchs, what they did was they got a boy before puberty and they had a dog bite his <laughs> genitals off. Sometimes they coated them in human dung first mm. to make it more appetizing to the dogs. Which raises a lot of questions of, as to what how feces are appetizing. <laughs> let's not go there. No, let's not. Let's not. Researchers attempting to create artificial enamel have successfully developed a thin film which, by functioning as a barrier, could prevent tooth decay. The tooth patch is made from hydroxyapatite, which is found in teeth and bone, and is a primary mineral component in tooth enamel. Whilst it has been previously used as a replacement for amputated bone and a stimulant of bone growth into prosthetic implants, the scientists from the Kinki University in Western Japan have been able to increase its usage by making it more flexible. This is the world's first flexible appetite sheet, which we hope to use to protect teeth or repair damaged enamel, says Professor Shigeki Honsu. The film, which is 0.004mm thick, is created by firing lasers of compressed blocks of hydroxyapatite in a vacuum. The particles, which fall onto a salt block, become crystallized after heating. Honsu estimates that it will take approximately five or more years before the film is able to be used as a dental treatment. Among other problems, nearly a day is required for the film to firmly adhere to the tooth surface. Its potential use com cosmetically, however, could be much sooner. At present, once applied to the tooth surface, it becomes transparent, but with colouring, could be used to make teeth appear whiter. Currently, the technology has been patented in Japan and South Korea. We plan to expand this to the US, Europe and China. Chocolate memories for snails. An undergraduate scientist at the University of Calgary in Canada, Lee Frusen, wanted to test whether chocolate really does help your memory. But humans have too many other variables in the way to see any real effects. His supervisor's solution was to test the effects of one chemical in chocolate, the flavonoid epicatechin, and his favourite animal, the pond snail. Pond snails can be trained to remember a simple activity such as keeping their breathing tube, a snail snorkel, closed when they're under deoxygenated water. Pond snails can breathe through their skin, or they can extend a breathing tube like a snorkel above the water's surface to breathe. You train them to keep the snorkel closed with a gentle tap. Normally, a half-hour training session would be enough for the snails to remember for around three hours. Snails fed epicatechin were able to remember their training a full 24 hours later. With two training sessions, the snails could remember their training for more than three days. So from three hours to three days. So were the memories stronger as well as longer. Memories can be overwritten in a process called extinction. If the newer memory is weak, then the original memory can be restored. 
When they tried to extinguish the, the epicatation-enhanced memory with a memory that it was okay to open their breathing tubes, the new memory wouldn't take. The snails kept their breathing tubes shut. The epicatation-enhanced training was too strong to be extinguished. The researchers found that instead of being tied to a sensory impression like the smell of a predator, the epicatation directly affect the neurons that store the memory. Undergrad student Lee Fruson, biologist Ken Lukowiak, are now set to investigate this effect on memory neurons. Their paper was published in the Journal of Experimental Biology and is called A Flavanol Present in Cocoa, Epicatation, Enhances Snail Memory. So just maybe half a bar of dark chocolate while you're studying might improve your marks. Last week, I attended the Enhancing Learning and Science Through Inquiry and Technology Forum at the University of Technology, Sydney. Amongst the day's speakers were people talking about smartphones, virtual worlds, computer modelling, and actually doing science as a first-year student. Associate Professor Kendall McGuffey from UTS spoke about smart stuff with smartphones, He's investigating the Wikisensor app for the iPhone, which suggests that when you cover the lens of your phone's camera with black tape, only light generated from a radioactive material will get through, so the app makes your phone into a Geiger counter on the cheap. Now, Kendall is very sceptical that this will actually detect any radiation at all, but he's looking into it. He told us that there's a real Geiger counter you can buy to plug into your phone's USB port that really does detect radioactivity. Naturally, it's been popular in Japan. The Sensor Log app lets you see graphs of the data from your phone's sensors. He says that most games are good for teaching physics because they almost always have some kind of physics in them. In fact, physics engines are the basis for all sorts of computer games. An Orbit Simulator app Let students define an object's mass and distance and see how they interact gravitationally. What happens if you add a third body? There's also apps that can track motion in a video and give you the speed and acceleration of the objects. There's Tech Basic for programming your phone and a roller coaster game that measures the G-forces experienced by passengers. Kendall emphasised that students should be rewarded for exploring science on their own. And of course, that reward has to be in the form of marks, because that's how it works. Someone from the audience commented that if you carefully add a drop of water to your phone's camera lens, it will act like a microscope, as long as you don't get it wrong and void the warranty. Dr Charlotte Taylor from Sydney University spoke about how virtual worlds and computational modelling engage high school students. She was presenting to Year 8 students. Collaborating with computer scientists, she built a virtual world called Osmosa, where students can walk around. 
they explore habitats, make observations of animal populations, talk with scientists and local people. In order to devise hypotheses to answer an ecological problem that they have to solve. Students can then test their hypotheses in a modelling program called NetLogo, which is used in ecological research in the real world. So computer models for year eight students. They present the results. They present the results to their peers using PowerPoint slides or posters and by submitting an online lab book. Students really liked using the NetLogo modelling software to test their ideas. Professor Gabriella Weaver from Purdue University gave the keynote speech at the Enhancing Learning and Science through Inquiry and Technology Forum. She's designed and run a curriculum that engages first and second year science students in contributing to authentic scientific research. I spoke with her in the tea break. Really, we're engaging students in carrying out scientific research, but having them do this as part of their mainstream coursework rather than having them do that as uh, some sort of activity outside of the curriculum. So they're actually doing genuine research as part of the curriculum in That's their true. undergraduate degree? That's correct. That's very impressive. That's got to be very exciting for the students. They do say it's exciting and when we have them reflect on it many times they tell us that they felt it was important work, that they were actually contributing to something and that it was more than just a learning activity. Well, of course they are. They're contributing to knowledge, to new knowledge. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so how do you integrate the research into the curriculum? We work with scientists who are um, you know, have an ongoing project of some sort that they can integrate students-based data on that. So the scientists then write um, the experimental protocols that these students can follow in the class, so in their laboratory courses, um, they will carry out uh, procedures and, and either um, develop some sort of sample that the scientists can then take and analyze, or they will actually carry out the experiments themselves, the students on the, on the samples, and provide the data to the researchers. That's impressive. And so the research will actually be published? In many cases, yes. Sometimes the research the students do in the course really sort of contributes to the scientists being able to make a decision about a path to follow. So they may not necessarily have their own data published, but it would help the research team then look at the work that they've done and say, all right, well, we want to we want to take a closer look at this set of parameters, for example, that the students have um, looked at and, and given us some sort of evidence that, in fact, it might be promising to go in that direction. So even if it's not directly published, it will contribute to the work that ultimately is published. And would you be able to give me any examples of the sort of research the students have been involved with? One of the experiments that has been very popular is um, an experiment about the antioxidant levels in foods. Um, before and after processing. So the students had been working on um, green tea, looking at the antioxidant um, capacity of green teas. And they can um, look at the teas um, basically when they're initially dried or in different types of mixtures of teas, uh, different 
brewing times, uh, prepared in different ways, mixed with different things, and, and then collect data to see uh, what kind of antioxidant capacity those different uh, versions of the green tea have. Or sometimes they will look at different manufacturers of, of green tea. Another example is when they've looked at fruits and vegetables uh, in that same experiment, and they will process the, the fruits or the vegetables, so the difference between um, raw blueberries or blueberries that are cooked and processed into a blueberry pie. Um, is, you know, is it still as healthy for you to eat the blueberry pie? Uh, the sugar content notwithstanding, <laughs> in terms of the antioxidants. And um, with the tea study in particular, um, that was an area that the researchers ended up publishing in, and they were able to base some of their decisions on the kinds of studies the students had done. Though they never actually published any of the uh, data that the students actually collected, they were able to use the student data to lay out a direction for um, what type of teas they were going to explore in more detail. And do the students get any credit in the papers? Yes, uh, we've actually had a number of different papers published, so I, I showed you a list of eight different modules that we have developed in CASPI, the original eight modules, and a number of different papers have come out um, from those modules. In some cases, students are listed as co-authors on the papers, and in other cases, the students are acknowledged in the acknowledgement section of the paper, depending on the level to which the student data were actually used. And if people want to find out more, where should they look? www.caspi.org, that's C-A-S-P-I-E dot O-R-G. And the CASPI stands for? The Center for Authentic Science Practice in Education. For Professor Gabriella Weaver, thank you very much. You're that was Professor Gabriella Weaver from Purdue University, Indiana, talking about the Center for Authentic Science Practice in Education, CASPI, that allows first and second year science students to engage in ongoing authentic scientific research. You can find out more at www.caspie.org. Guinea pigs used to be the size of rhinos Raccoons were the size and ferocity of bears Oh, it's a fact, so deal with that It's a fact, yeah, deal with that The moon is moving away from the earth by 4 centimetres a year when it's gone we are all well and truly buggered Oh it's a fact, so deal with that It's a fact, so deal with that Blue whales are bloody massive Their tongues weigh as much as an elephant Its heart is the size of a cow And some of its blood vessels are so wide That you could swim down them Oh it's a fact, so you deal with that It's a fact, so deal with that your average pillow, about six years old, is made up from one tenth of skin, living mites, dead mites, and mite dung. Oh, it's a fact, so deal with that. It's a fact, so deal with that. It's a fact, you deal with that. It's a fact, deal with that. It's a fact. 
Deal With That was written and performed by Sam Greenwood. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send email to diffusion at 2SER.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network, into Sydney on 2SER 107.3, and over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. The Scopus Young Researcher of the Year Awards honour the achievements of young researchers in Australasia. The 2012 awards were announced recently and five winners were selected from the main categories. Oliver spoke to Michael Kasumovic, an academic from the University of New South Wales, the winner of the Life and Biological Sciences category, for his work in male mating patterns and sexual competition. First of all, congratulations on winning the award. Oh, thank you very much. It was quite an honour. What did it mean to you to win the award? Oh, it meant quite a lot of things, actually. It's, it's fantastic to win an award like this because one of, one of the things it actually means is that my research is really having an impact, which is, you know, anything any researcher can ever really hope and dream of, actually. Um, and it kind of gives me some of the confidence to continue what I'm doing because it seems to be interesting to not only other scientists, but really the general public as well. For the award, you were looking at male mating patterns and sexual competition. So what is it you're looking at specifically in these areas? Well, I'm really interested in the variety of traits that males express in, in, and how they try and entice females to mate with them. Often what the general public learns from, from what males are doing is mainly from nature shows. And, and what they learn is that the, the biggest, the brightest, and, and the strongest males usually you know, gain access to females and are able to, to mate and monopolize them. But that really leads to a question of why these smaller males continue ex- to exist. And that's really what my research kind of focuses on, trying to answer that question. So I want to understand why the little guy seems to survive and mate with females despite all these big guys being around who kind of monopolize females. Okay. So, um, what, have you come up with any answers so far? Well, they use a completely different set of strategies. Um, when males are developing, for example, some of my research shows that they're actually paying attention to how many females are around them and how many males and rivals are going to have to compete against as adults. And what they end up doing is they change how they develop and they develop traits that undermine other males around them and potentially give them an, an advantage in competitions and in mating opportunities with the females. Okay, so they're learning from um, social factors, not just relying on their own fitness. That's exactly it. So what they're doing is they're actually paying attention to some extent, either to how other males are behaving or how many females there are in, in nature while they are developing, and then kind of change how they look and how they act as adults so they can try and take advantage of some of the weaknesses they see in other males. Okay. So um, what, what drove you to study evolution and ecology in the first place? I just found it absolutely fascinating, the, the, the variety of, of species out there and the different mating strategies males have in, in these different species. and just, excuse me, just how the different traits that evolve, like, for example, in one of the species I work on is a tiny little peacock spider endemic to Australia, and males have these fantastic little tails that they show, just like peacocks, uh, when they're trying to court females. And it's just fascinating to try and find out how some of these traits have evolved in the environment that the males actually live in. Um, you mentioned the spider, and you study spiders and insects in particular. Um, why did you decide to study spies and insects? 
there's so few people actually working on spiders, and they're just such a fascinating group of animals. Um, and one of the most interesting aspects is what a lot of people know is that males usually end up dying as they're mating with females. But because of that, they've evolved so many neat little strategies to try and take advantage of females in that last little moment that really makes them kind of interesting to study. Uh, for example, uh, males actually have two copulatory organs or two penises in the top of their heads that they use to mate with females. So they actually have two different attempts to mate with any female. So things are a little bit different in the spider world, and you can ask some really interesting questions of how males are actually trying to monopolize females and, and maximize their fitness. Okay. And um, so you've also studied humans a little bit in this regard. Um, what kind of study have you done there? So I'm just starting to look at, at what humans are doing. And humans are a, a much more complex animal, and things are always a little bit more difficult to, to pin down. But some of my research on human really involves male competition as well and, and how males perceive themselves performing in competitions and how that changes their perspectives and their behaviors afterwards. So kind of along the same lines. But often males aren't competing in the same way we think animals are. But there's a neat way that you can actually manipulate individual competition, and that's through video games. Everybody seems to play video games nowadays, and this is a great way for social interactions and you still have that winner and loser effect that males have when encountering other males. So you can see how video games may actually influence individual behavior and perspectives and mating opportunities in a very short-term kind of way. That's all I wanted to ask. Um, thank you very much for doing this interview. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you very much. And congratulations again on winning the award. Thank you very much. It was quite an honor. That was Oliver Featherston talking to Michael Kasumovic about his work in evolutionary ecology and the sexual strategies of spiders and humans, and the Young Researcher of the Year Award. And that's all from us this time on Diffusion. If you'd like to be on radio and you live in Sydney, we need more volunteers on Diffusion. If you're not in Sydney, then perhaps you could record a story and email it to us. You can send email to diffusion at 2ser.com. That's diffusion at 2ser.com, and tell us your thoughts, feelings, and stories. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com That's www.diffusionradio.com Contributing to the program were Therese Chen and Oliver Featherston. I produced Diffusion in the studios of 2SCR, www.2SCR.com in Sydney and Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. And try the 2SCR iPhone app. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Looking at the URL, the first thing that sticks out is the colon. And how about a slashing or cutting sound for the slashes? To complete the experience, we might throw in the HTTP and maybe some kind of download sound. www.diffusionradio.com Lachlan Watmore on guitar. Ha, <laughs> ha,